Please remain standing for the reading of the New Testament, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 11, verses 12 through 19. Mark 11, 12 through 19, God's, again, God's holy and inspired word. Mark 11, beginning in verse 12. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. He said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And the disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. Thus far the reading of God's word may bless it to us. So we all like things clean. Now, some of us are more precise and thorough with cleanliness, and others less so. But washed, rinsed, and spotless feels so good. And this is because merely to exist in our world is to get dirty. The washed glass you put in the cupboard still gathers grime. The scrubbed hands of your kid, they last a few minutes. And even crown jewels in an airtight display case get dusty. The question is, though, when is dirty too dirty to be clean? When is washing a lost cause? That is, the stain is set in permanently, the tarnish is now rusted all the way through, the greasy layer is immune to bleach, acid, and all the industrial strength, solvents, and sanitizers. Nothing is left but to trash it. It's time to recycle and get something new. When cleaning is vain, destruction is fitting. Well, this is a fact of life with stuff and things, but how about with people? For we dirty not just our bodies, but we stain our hearts and our souls with lewd sins and nasty crimes. Are our hearts so polluted with wickedness, so solid with impurity, that they are past the point of purifying? Is the dust of depravity permanent on us? Well, as our Lord returns to the temple, his wild behavior leads us to just the right answer. So we just witnessed Jesus make his first visit to Jerusalem and the temple in the book of Mark. And he did so amid the fanfare and cheerful chants of the ecstatic crowds, singing Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Though, despite all this glorious hype, our Lord pulled a letdown. He didn't surf a wave of popularity to a crown and a throne to riches and fame. Instead, he oddly took a gander around the temple and left. He did a speed walk through an open house. This seems kind of random. Why didn't he capitalize on the moment to make a real impact with the people? Well, we pointed out how his looking around was a judicial assessment 
of visual inspection. And his quick exit was a foreboding sign of repudiation and rejection. And yet this was a skeletal reaction. It was his private response. We need Jesus to put some flesh on these bones, some meat on the bones. His private grade requires a public release. And so on this very next day, Jesus is ready to publish and post for all to see. Additionally, Mark sets up our our Lord's entry into Jerusalem in parallel to the previous day. On day one, he made his approach from Bethany. He had a need of a donkey. The crowds cheered, and so he entered the holy city. Likewise, on this second day, Jesus takes off from Bethany, where they enjoyed some delightful hospitality for the night. Though right out of the door... Jesus is hungry. Now, this hunger matches up with him having need of a donkey colt on the day before. And yet, this hunger should strike us as interesting. He just left the house. How is he hungry so fast? Did the host forget to feed him breakfast? Or is he acting like a kid who insists they're not hungry when you're serving breakfast, only to be starving five minutes later after you've cleaned up? Well, these curiosities should alert us that there is something more to his hunger. The Mount of Olives, though, was covered with gardens and orchards. It was a living snack bar. And so a bit in the distance, Jesus spots a fig tree loaded with green leaves. Well, this is promising. He walks over to find some of the early figs to pop in his mouth like candy. But when he gets there, he finds no fruit. There's not a single fig, but only leaves. Now, a few fig facts are helpful to follow what's going on. The fig trees in Israel produce two crops, one in early summer, about May and early June, and the main crop in late summer, August and into September. And the early figs were considered especially delicious, and they would eat them right off the tree. Yet in the spring, figs produce blooms and budding fruit before it gets its leaves. This is why Mark emphasizes emphasizes that it has leaves. Jesus saw the leaves, and so he went over to it. He was disappointed that it had no fruit, only leaves. The leaves should be a sign of fruit, if not ripe fruit, at least baby fruit. But alas, he finds zero Nothing, no fruit. However, Mark adds a line that is boggling. It was not the season for figs. He explains the lack of fruit by not being or by being out of season. Now, Passover falls in March into April, which is much too early for the early figs of May, June. This detail, though, makes our Lord appear out of touch. If it was not the season for figs, why in the world would he go over to pick figs? How can he be upset at the lack of fruit if it's not the season for fruit? Is our Lord a city boy, clueless to the way of the fig? Well, surely not. Rather, this exposes that he's up to something symbolic. His hungry, his hunger for fig search is teaching a lesson. And sure enough, 
his time with the fig, Mark puts in parallel with the previous day, with Jesus' parade into the city. Simply put, what did Jesus think of the crowd cheering him along? What was his assessment of their proclaiming him the Davidic king? Well, he's telling us by this fig tree. Hence, he's piqued that the tree's leafy fruitfulness, and he curses it. May no one ever eat fruit from you again. Jesus curses the fig to never be visited by another hungry human. Now, this may seem harmless to us. We tend to think that trees and creation is better off without humans. But this is not the creation theology of God's word. Rather, God made fruit trees to be food for girls and boys. To be picked and eaten from a fig tree is a fig tree's God-given purpose. It's the tree's state of happiness. To be abandoned by human eaters is a fig's worst nightmare. It's their hell. Of course, this fig is not about the fig. Rather, in the Old Testament, fruit trees, like figs, were a grand blessing of the covenant. For the people's obedience, the Lord would reward them with bumper crops of figs. The fruitlessness of the fig, then, was a spiritual barometer for the people's obedience and devotion to God. In fact, the common metaphor for obedience was the fruitful tree. The people were planted by God, and their heavenly purpose was to yield the fruit of faith and obedience to the praise of their covenant Lord. Just as the fig was created for the delight of man, so Israel was redeemed for the sweet worship of God. Therefore, Jesus cursing the fig tree, his his estimation of the people's parade yesterday. And the image is quite telling. A beautiful leafy tree with no fruit. This is appearance with no substance. It is a gorgeous man with no brain. It is bloated flattery with no sincerity. Lavish leaves without fruit is Cinderella's gown on a stepsister. And this is Jesus' image for the crowd cheering Hosanna. They proclaimed him the Davidic king. They hailed him as ushering in the Davidic kingdom. Cloaks were spread on the road. Palms were waved with tribute. What a stunning beauty queen. And yet their handsome singing was hollow. It was fruitless as it died out as quickly as it flared up. The spectacular glee was like a firecracker, a momentary wow. And so Jesus condemns the people's reception of him as fruitless. Their earthly conception of his messiahship was bankrupt. Their hope for a political kingdom was a bare branch. Their enchantment with Jesus was only an inch deep. If you want to know what our Lord thinks of people trying to make his kingdom earthly, look to the fig. The cursed, fruitless fig stands as a monument of warning for all who attempt to make Christ's kingdom into a political entity 
for social justice. It may look good on the outside, but on the inside it produces no fruit and so is cursed. And yet this is the only this is only the first grade that Jesus gives of the events of the previous day. First, he grades as cursed the fruitlessness of their welcome parade. Second, though, he needs to register his judgment on the temple that he entered to look around. Thus, now they enter Jerusalem and go directly to the temple. And once in the holy place of God's house, our Lord seems to lose his temper. We thought the curse was harsh, but that was mild. For now, Jesus puts on his hard hat, grabs a sledge, and goes into demo mode. He chases out of the temple, buyer and seller, as if they were rats in the pantry. He flips over tables stacked high with coins. He overturns the seats and stalls of the pigeon salesmen. And he forbids everyone from carrying any vessel into the temple. What a ruckus. Our Lord is typically so calm and patient, but here his anger explodes with violence. What's going on? Well, you often hear that Jesus is cleansing the temple to condemn some of its wicked practices, abuse of the poor, profaning the holy, or the like. Yet cleansing does not really fit our Lord's action here, nor does reforming particular practices. For one, he goes after both buyers and sellers, And the buyers are the pilgrims who came to worship, and the law demands that the worshiper cannot appear before God empty-handed. They must bring a sacrifice. Moreover, in Deuteronomy, the Lord provided that people who lived a long way from the temple could bring their money to buy offerings in Jerusalem. Likewise, pigeons were the cheapest sacrifice. They were one of God's gracious accommodations to the poor. By chasing off the pigeons, Jesus is hurting the poor, not helping them. Additionally, verse 16 literally says he would not allow anyone to carry a vessel in the temple. And the idiom for carrying a vessel refers to bringing offerings. You would put your grain or wine in a vessel and carry it to the priest at the altar. This all means that Jesus is not reforming some aspect of the temple, but he puts a stop to worship itself. Yet he shuts down the worship of God here. The temple runs off of worshipers buying and bringing offerings, but Jesus turns it off. Our Lord is not stopping something unlawful here. Rather, he cancels the lawful worship of God in the temple. This is further brought out by the money changers that he sends flying. Now, these money changers had held a critical role in the function of the temple. For by law, the people had to pay once a year a half-shekel tax to the temple. And this tax was paid a few weeks leading up to Passover. This tax, though, had to be paid in the currency of the temple, Tyrrhenian shekels. 
Therefore, people would come with Roman denarii, Greek drachmas, and they would exchange them for Tyrrhenian silver to pay. More significant yet, though, was that this half-shekel tax paid for the daily offerings of lamb, morning and evening. And the daily offerings were central to the very heart of the temple in providing atonement. These offerings were considered to be the source of the people's forgiveness and right standing before God. Thus, we know from history that your average Hebrew generally took pride in paying the temple tax. It was their privilege and participation in achieving atonement. If you didn't pay, you were excluded from the corporate atonement of the temple. Well, Jesus takes the money from the atonement and scatters it. He casts this payment for atonement into the wind like shaft. Therefore, Jesus' actions are not a cleansing, but they're a condemnation of. He symbolically stops all sacrifice and worship to show its ultimate end is near. In fact, the word here used for overturning tables and chairs is the classic Old Testament word for the overthrowing of Sodom. Yes, Jesus invokes the ruin of Sodom by by his smashing of the temples. Moreover, the prophets used Sodom's overthrowing as a pattern for God's destruction of the Old Testament temple and Jerusalem. Jesus is not cleansing a thing here, but he's tossing it into the trash. The stains of the temple run too deep. The impurity of the priest has rusted into the stones of the sanctuary, and the wickedness of the people is a layer of grime that will not come off. And so our Lord has to destroy. The rottenness goes into the very heart. Demolition is the only option. Therefore, Jesus starts teaching to explain his violent wreckage. Prophetic signs require a word of interpretation. And Jesus gives two. One, he refers to Isaiah 56. He quotes the promise how my house will be called a house of prayer. Now, to begin with, Jesus takes the word of God here as his own. Note he puts himself in the place of Yahweh and he claims the temple as my house. Next, this shall be called is a promise. In Isaiah 56, this is a future promise that will come to pass when God's salvation happens. A house of prayer for the Gentiles is a benefit of the second Exodus redemption. Jesus is not saying the temple failed to be this in the present. No, rather, he's announcing what is soon going to happen to the temple. He's saying this is what he came to remake the temple into. Hence, Jesus stresses prayer. He stops all sacrifice for atonement, and he announces a house of prayer. Now, sure, prayer also accompanied the sacrifices in all Old Testament worship. But to put a stop to sacrifice and to trumpet prayer, this is a fundamental change in the proper worship of God's people. 
our Lord ruined sacrificial worship to forecast the destruction of the temple, and he publishes how our worship will become characterized by prayer. In fact, a house of prayer was one of the names used for the synagogues upon which the New Testament church was based. Yet Jesus gives one more interpretation on his overturning the tables. This time he quotes Jeremiah's famous temple sermon of Jeremiah 7. The people and the priests have made the temple into a den of robbers. Now, the word for robbery here doesn't refer narrowly to theft, home invasion. Rather, it's much more, it's a much more intense word for violent marauding, pirating. It's often used for insurrectionist, revolutionary zealots, and merciless political rebels. Yet Jeremiah employs this word not so much for a specific crime, but rather for the force of a felon, that is the worst sort of criminal. For the sins he lists against Jerusalem include murder, theft, adultery, and swearing falsely. The Decalogue, he especially condemns the idolatry of Jerusalem, sacrifices to Baal, and incense to the Queen of Heaven. Nevertheless, the bullseye of Jeremiah's condemnation is a specific wickedness. As we read in Jeremiah 7.4, the deceptive words were, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. This was the sin in trusting in the temple of making it an idol. That is, the people thought that they were free to live a wicked life, for as long as they had the temple, they were safe from destruction. This is the way of the mafia. Run a life of crime but celebrate Mass and you're fine. Hence, the temple is their den, their cave, their refuge from the law. They run out to commit high crimes and misdemeanors against Yahweh, and then they retreat for safety in the very house of Yahweh. This is a pagan theology of temple, an idolatrous view of sacrifice. Namely, it says that God doesn't care about how you live as long as you keep him bribed with sweet sacrifices. This is why the conclusion to Jeremiah's temple sermon was temple destruction like that of Sodom, which is the same point of our Lord. To denounce the temple as a den of robbers is for him to condemn them for rejecting the Lord for them refusing to accept him as the Messiah. This is the utmost covenant violation that brings supreme covenant destruction. And sadly, the priests prove our Lord true without delay. They fulfill his very prophecy as they immediately start to plot how to destroy Jesus. The priests and scribes witness Jesus closing the temple down momentarily, and so they plot to shut him down permanently. They will slaughter this overturner of tables. 
Just as their fathers rejected Yahweh of old, so they reject the Son of God in the present. This is the chief sin and rebellion. Nothing to do with individual practices, but everything to do with Jesus. They will murder the Messiah of God and take refuge in the temple, thinking they are safe. And yet, what is the only thing that holds them back from stabbing Jesus on the spot? It's that they fear the people who marvel at Jesus. And this fear betrays their pride, their lust to hold on to power. Their first love is the arrogance of power. And so they must crush Jesus who shows authority. But they must be careful as they don't want to lose the support of the people. And with this, though, evening comes and Jesus leaves to head back to Bethany. Jesus' second day in Jerusalem parallels his first. On this second day, he makes explicit what was implicit yesterday. First, he curses the fig to denounce the people's praise as leafy but fruitless. And he purges the temple to seal it for destruction. Moreover, his stopping worship here prepares us for his cross. All the pigeons and shekel taxes went to provide atonement for all the people. By the silver, sacrifices were offerings to ransom sinners. And yet right before getting to Jerusalem, Jesus said that he came to give his life as a ransom. By stopping sacrifices for atonement, Jesus clears the way for him to become the one and only sacrifice for your sins. By scattering the coins, Jesus announces that animal blood cannot pay for your sins, but his blood can. Indeed, the fountainhead of your forgiveness, the foundation for your atonement to reconcile you to God, does not lie in the temple, but it's found in the cross of Christ. Moreover, by his death, Jesus reveals just how corrupt we are in our depravity. Jesus does not purify you by washing with water, by smearing pigeon's blood on you, or rubbing oil on you. No, your atonement meant his death and resurrection. So our old natures in Adam did not require just a little scrubbing, a bit of elbow grease. No, we needed to die to the flesh and be made alive in the image of Christ. In the death of Christ, Jesus took you from death to new creation in him. And being made new in him, all of grace, Christ has made us into his house of prayer. Our worship is not about bringing doves and incense, sheep and grain, but it is about us casting ourselves upon the grace of Christ with humble petition. In prayer, we bless our triune God. In prayer, we joyfully give him all the thanksgiving and honor. In prayer, we rest in the perfect righteousness and mediation of Christ our atoning sacrifice. And in prayer, we go forth in the name of Christ to live upright 
and holy lives for our God. Indeed, in Christ, may the church never become a den of felons for us. Church is not where we hide from God, but where we come to be fully seen, to confess our weakness and sin, and to be renewed by grace unto sincere love and devoted obedience. In worship, the truth of the word fuels us to be fruitful unto Christ. Like a fig tree, we were created anew to yield fruit for our Savior. Thus may we not be leafy and fruitless, but from the heart may the fruit of the Spirit grow upon us abundantly. Let us then be a house of prayer, one of humble dependence upon grace and a fruitful fig, rich in love and faith, so that we might enjoy our chief end to glorify God now and forever.